turn together to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Hopefully you haven't forgotten where Philippians is in your Bible after a few weeks. As we jump right back in to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Our text this morning is Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Hear now the very word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative in your life and mine. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. That you would show us what duty you require of us. That you would equip us and empower us by your spirit. That we might know you better, love you better, and serve you better. We ask all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been gathering together through, or we've been going together through the book of Philippians, listening to the Apostle Paul tell us of the greatness of our salvation, of our duty to one another. And you've heard me mention on occasion, and I think this is another good reminder, that the Apostle Paul was a pastor. He was someone whose heart went out for his people, desired that they know the truth and know how to respond to the truth. And I say this because one of the jobs of a pastor is, as I have told you before, to simply remind you of things that you already know, to keep reminding you of the truths of the Scriptures over and over again. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here this morning. The Apostle Paul is reminding the Philippians and reminding us of the great truth of the Scripture around salvation. He is telling us an age-old problem has been resolved in Christ Jesus. This problem that comes up often as Christians wonder, who is at work in their lives? Am I, in wor- am I at work? Is God at work? And the answer, Paul says, is a resounding yes. You are at work because God is at work. And so what I would like us to see this morning is this work of salvation, this work of sanctification in our lives. First, we will look at the work of salvation defined. What is this work of salvation? Then we will look at the work of salvation demanded. The work of salvation that is demanded of us by our God. And then finally, we will see the work of salvation delivered. The work of our salvation that is delivered to us by our God. So let us first then begin by looking at verse 12 and see the work of salvation defined. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not 
as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as we read this and as we think about this and hear it, immediately our ears are struck. It's like fingers on a chalkboard. It's like someone who's not a native English speaker using a wrong preposition. It just cuts us the wrong way to hear the words work and salvation in the same sentence. We wonder and we say to ourselves, Paul, why are you using this kind of unusual language? You know, often, Paul, you are very forthright about the fact that there is no work at all involved in our salvation. You may recall in the book of Galatians, Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And in Romans 3, he describes justification as being righteous through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, a righteousness that is manifested apart from the law. And he gives us that great example of Abraham, who is justified not by his works, so that he might have something to boast about, but by believing God. And that this kind of justification comes to the one who does not work, but who trusts him who justifies the ungodly. And so we may wonder here, what are we to do with this verse in Philippians? Now, if you are curious where we will go and what we will do, if you're scrambling through a study Bible to find the answer in the bottom, know that commentators have as much difficulty with this as the average Christian. Many commentators are scared silly over this verse. They don't know what to do. They try and figure out a way to define salvation or define work or explain it away or wonder if Paul might actually be making a mistake here because it seems so contrary to what Paul is talking about. So what we need to think about here is first, what is Paul talking about when he says salvation? Well, the first thing that we can say is he is not talking about justification. That is being right with God, being pardoned from sin and death, being found not guilty and accepted by God as righteous. Because after all, Scripture agrees with Scripture, and we've just looked at Galatians 2 and Romans 3 and 4, and Paul clearly lays out and he says, one is justified with God by faith, not by works. And you'll notice that the word here is not justified. It doesn't say work out your justification. It says work out your salvation. We can also say that he's not talking about our adoption. That is being a part of the family of God. We become the children of God because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is our elder brother. We are in the family of God because we are right with God. And he claims us as his child. You can be no more a child of God than when the Lord pardons your sins and declares you his righteous child. If you think about it, that's obvious from our own experience. Your children don't become more your children as they grow older. They look different. They may live in a different city. They may take up different hobbies. But they don't become more or less a part of your family. You see, when we talk about justification or we talk about adoption, we know that we have nothing to contribute at all to that aspect of our salvation. Paul puts it 
positively in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that the work of God is to pardon us by faith. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then again in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Perhaps the clearest expression in the scriptures of how positively God justifies apart from any works. Paul also takes the time in his letter to Titus to give the negative of that, that we cannot be justified by anything that we do. Verse 5 of chapter 3 of Titus, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Even our own catechism draws a distinction here, talking about justification and adoption as the act of God's grace. A singular point in time in which God acts upon us. So what does this mean? The first thing before we delve into this text is, if you are wondering about the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are thinking about His claims on your life, if you are wondering what you would need to do to be a good Christian, not wondering what you need to do to be saved, you must stop now. There is nothing that you can do to be right with God. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you. It is simply His own mercy and grace. You see, salvation changes our relationship with God because of what God does. But the second thing that we see here in salvation is that salvation also changes who we are. It not only changes our relationship with God, but that relationship is changed because we are changed by God. You see, the word salvation has a broader meaning than we often give to it. We think of salvation as pardon from sin, as justification, as something that happened in the past. And then we have to go and muddle about the future. But you see, salvation as the work of God in our life is something that comprehends both the past, the present, and the future. It has been said this way, I was saved. I am being saved, and I will be saved. When we think about the past, we think about justification. We were saved from the wrath of sin. And when we think about the future, we think about our glorification, that we will be saved in glory. But what Paul is, wants us to focus on this morning is sanctification. This present aspect of salvation, I am being saved now. You see, sanctification is the work of God in us in which He changes us. It's a work that is progressive. It is ongoing. It is not merely a point in time. It is a work in which God fashions us in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is what the Bible means when it says that the law is written on our hearts. In Hebrews 8, verse 10. You see, God makes us more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. He makes us more and more into Jesus' image. The one who always obeyed. The one who never gave in to temptation. 
The one who never sinned, who never had guile found in his mouth. This is the work of salvation that God is doing in the lives of the Philippians. It's also the work of salvation, Christian, that he's doing in your life right now. And this work has two components, Paul says. The first is the work of salvation that is demanded. It is a work that is demanded of us from God. It is a command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul commands. It is not a suggestion. It is not pious advice to be ignored. It is a command to be obeyed. And so the first question that we ask ourselves is, what is it that we work? What do we work? And then the second question we will look at is, how do we do this work? So first, what is it that we work? We work, Paul says, obedience. As you have always obeyed, so now as in my presence and also in my absence, obey and work out your salvation, Paul says. You see, obedience also has a past, a present, and a future component, just like salvation does. Paul encourages the Philippians by pointing them to their past obedience in Christ. And he encourages them right now to obey, even as he is absent. And even as he has reminded them in chapter 1 that he hopes to return to them soon, he wants to return to them in the future, finding them obeying. Why such emphasis on obedience? Why such a emphasis on obeying God and his commands? I thought the Christian life was all one of grace. All one of mercy. Well, it is. And that grace and mercy involves the grace of obedience. You see, no Christian ever reaches perfection in this life. But he must grow in grace. Paul says that himself in chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see, the work of Jesus Christ points us on to follow him in obedience. It's because change is an essential part of salvation. There is a falsehood, a lie that has sprung up again in the modern day. It was found in America at its founding at the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It's the lie of the devil that says, if God saves me, I don't need to change. And I certainly don't need to work to do anything to change. God will take care of this. I'll just let go and let God. And see what he does. And this is a falsehood. This is not even true, as it were, of our coming to faith. No one comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by standing around and saying, Okay, God, do whatever you will. I'm waiting. No. We come to faith by exercising the faith and repentance, the twin gifts that God gives to us. And so this is also true in our sanctification. Obedience is vital. One commentator puts it this way. To live in persistent, habitual disobedience is not just immaturity in a Christian. It is absurdity. It is like talking about dry water or a fish that lives on land or a cat that barks 
it's not a part of the nature of a Christian to disobey the Lord and His commands. And Paul presses this point home to the Philippians. He says, you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence. You see, Paul knows that the obedience of the Christian is not tied to thinking someone is watching. It is tied to pleasing God, to living after the way in which God has laid down in His Word. Paul says, even though I'm not there, I desire to hear that you are obeying. Now, think about this for a minute. What would a church be like if people only obeyed when they thought someone was watching? Think about what a family would be like if the children only obeyed when mom or dad were watching. Is that indicative of your life? Do you only obey when others are looking to see what you're doing? Do you know what you call that, biblically speaking? Man-pleasing. Obedience only when others are watching, whether they be wives or husbands, parents, pastors, elders, Bible study leaders, is man-pleasing. It is saying, I don't obey because God commands me to. I obey because I think it affects my standing with man. And Paul says, put that far away from you. Don't even think about it. Obey in my absence, just as you did in my presence. You see, Paul also knows that it is important to have others around us to keep us accountable. We don't obey only because others watch us, but we obey more heartily, more readily when we have accountability. <coughs> it's the reason why leaders are given to the church. Leaders are given to the church to encourage obedience. And this is true not just in the church, but also in the home. Parents encourage their children to follow in the ways of life, to obey, to live a life that is full of blessings. This is, a why, this is why God has given leaders in the church and in the family. <coughs> Excuse me. This kind of work that we do is an essential part of our salvation, but it is also a responsible part of our salvation. Look at what Paul says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see what Paul does by those two little words, your own? He doesn't let you off the hook. You see, you are responsible for working out your own salvation. There is a personal responsibility there. It is a responsibility of everyone. Because you see, your own there is actually in the plural. Every single one of you must work out your own salvation. Children, your parents can't work out your salvation for you. Wives, even if your husband leads in the home, he cannot work out your salvation for you. Your elders cannot work out your salvation for you. Your pastor cannot work out your salvation for you. You must take personal responsibility for your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is where oftentimes 
Protestant churches become practically Roman Catholic. They want their pastor not to just be a pastor, but to be a priest. Oh, well, pastor, you can be good for me. You can do the praying for me. You can do the studying of the Bible for me. No. You must work out your own salvation, Paul says. You must take responsibility for your Christian life. Because you see, salvation is like a possession to be explored. You all know of my lack of fondness for all things mathematical. But here I think math provides us with a good illustration of what Paul means when he says, work out. It's like if you, and the emphasis here is on the you and not me, work out a math problem. You're not changing the math problem. (coughs) You're not discovering some kind of unknown solution, but rather you are taking a problem that has been given to you and you are exploring it to understand it fully. That's what you do with a problem. So it is here with your salvation. It is a possession that God has given to you, but you are not to hide it, burying it in the ground, to use a biblical illustration, but rather you are to use it to work it out, to see it in all of its aspects and its glory. It is meant to be something that is seen, not hidden. My brother-in-law, as we were on vacation this past week, finally achieved his middle-aged longing of so many years. He finally was able to purchase a used Corvette. He had been speaking about this for as long as I had known him, and I've been married more than a decade. And he was finally able to get it. So what did he do with it? Did he stick it in his garage and and put a car cover over it? No. He drove it everywhere. Even when they came down the street, literally about a tenth of a mile, to my mother-in-law's house for the semi-weekly get-together of Deb's family. And he brought it there and he took people in rides and he showed them and he showed them the magazine that he got with it and the catalog for the used parts. That's what your salvation is to be like, Christian. Don't be afraid of it. Don't minimalize it. Explore everything that God has for you in your life. Explore every aspect of the ministry that He has prepared for you, of the good works that He has prepared for you. You see, this kind of working out of our salvation requires us to obey God. It requires us to turn from sin and to turn to righteousness. And this is something that the American church has great difficulty with. Not because we don't know what sin is, but because we are very, very reluctant to admit it. We are reluctant to admit that we have inordinate desires or that we do not do all that God has given to us. But you see... If we are to work out our salvation, we must come face to face with our sin. We must not be afraid of others seeing our sin as we kill it before their eyes. There is no need to be ashamed of sin that you are destroying. You should want others to see it, to come alongside to you, to help you, to encourage you, to give you stories of their own victory over sin. Because you see, killing sin is an exceedingly difficult task. It's like, how could I think of something very 
esoteric and scholarly. It's like trick birthday candles. Have you ever had those? You light the candles. Well, you do it to someone else. You light their candles and everyone sings the song and they blow the candles out, especially with children. And they go out and everyone's, ooh. And then they come back up, seemingly from nowhere. Wait a minute. And a child will blow harder. And they'll go dark for a second or two. And then they come back to light. And after a few times, you get frustrated with it. You stop blowing. You lick your fingers and you put them out. That's what killing sin is like. It requires perseverance. It requires effort. It sometimes even requires pain. That's what it means to kill sin. But we don't just kill sin. We are called to live to God. This process of vivification, as it were, of living to righteousness in God is not something that comes automatically. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are waiting around for God to easily give you a prayer life or perseverance in studying the scriptures or patience or joy, you need to stop waiting and get working. You see, this is not something that simply comes automatically to the Christian. God works in our lives as we persevere and seek the things of God. This is the work that we are to do to kill sin and to live to God. And how are we to do this then is our second question. How do we work? Well, the first thing that we must realize is that this work is rooted in the obedience of Jesus Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 12. It's one of our favorite Bible words, isn't it? Therefore. And when you see a therefore, you look back and you see what the therefore is there for. If that sounds familiar, it should. We had the same thing in the last sermon in verse 9. Do you notice that? So Paul here in verse 12 is pointing us back to verses 9 through 11. You see, our salvation is about exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not about escaping hell. It's not about having your best marriage now. It's not about being happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. Your salvation is about being one of the tongues that confess and the knees that bow to the Lord Jesus Christ to His glory. That is the salvation that we work out. That is a salvation that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. We might even say that God's therefore of verse 9 is answered by the Christian's therefore of verse 12. Our obedience is rooted in Jesus' obedience. If you had a Greek Bible, it might be even clearer to you, although it should be clear in the English. If we look here at verse 12, as you have always obeyed is the exact same word that is used in verse 8, how Jesus became obedient. It's the exact same word. Our obedience is rooted in His obedience. And we should also work not just aware of that, but aware of the nature of the work itself. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now again, as we look at these words, we may perhaps be put off and say, well, 
The Christian shouldn't be afraid of God. We shouldn't be trembling before Him. We are His children after all. But these two words, when they are used together, whether they are used of pagans or whether they are used of Israel or the people of God, connotate a kind of awe, a kind of fear, respect at seeing the mighty acts of God. It's actually very specific. It isn't the kind of quaking in your boots because you don't know what's around the corner. It is seeing what God has done and the hair coming up on your arms and the back of your neck. Have you ever had that experience when you see something remarkable? The hair comes up on the back of your neck. It's like electricity. That's the kind of fear and trembling that Paul is talking about here because we understand and we realize that salvation is a precious thing. It is something that God has given to us that is of great value beyond anything that we could establish. And so we have this kind of fear, a family fear. You know what I mean. That fear that the son has of disappointing his father. That the worst words that he can hear is not, you're grounded, but I'm very disappointed in what you've done. If you've ever heard those words and where they drop there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a fear born by a desire to serve the father in every way. This is the kind of fear and trembling that Paul is talking about. This work is a work that we do in fear and trembling. It's a work that is rooted in Christ's obedience, but I also want you to notice that it occurs in the context of a community. Notice how Paul begins this passage that we've been looking at. Therefore, my beloved, dear friends, my dear friends, He is talking to them as one who is a part of them, who is a part of their community. Because you see, Paul knows that the growth of the community depends upon the growth of the individual. There is a very real sense that we as Christ's church will not grow unless each one of us grows. We will not become a church where holiness is seen unless each one of us seeks after holiness. We will not become a church where ministry is done unless each one of us seeks after ministry. We will not become a church that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ unless each one of us seeks to glorify Him. You see, this community aspect helps us to avoid the twin errors of working out our salvation. The first is the error that says, well, I'm the one that does it. I can do it all by myself. I'm in charge. Have you ever tried to do that in the context of an organization? To do everything yourself? To take care of every aspect of every detail? If you have, you immediately see how short you come. How foolish you were to think that you could do that. When you were in a community, you understand that you need each other. But there's another error that's there. The error that says, I don't really need to work hard at all. You know... There are things that will get done in the church. I don't, I don't ever have to straighten up the hymnals. I don't ever have to take my turn pouring coffee. they got plenty of people to work in the nursery. I don't ever have to go into the nursery. And we think that we can grow 
simply by skating along. But you see, the problem with each one of these errors is that they actually place the focus upon ourselves and our own needs rather than on the needs of the community and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a tall order. This is a great deal of work that Paul has placed in front of us. How can we possibly stand up to it? Well, this work that is demanded, this work of salvation demanded, is accompanied at the same time by a work of salvation that is delivered. Because you see, God himself is at work. It is no coincidence that right after Paul says, work out your own salvation, he says, for it is God who is at work in you. You see, the for there, it's not quite a therefore, but it's a for, shows that verse 12 is rooted in verse 13. What do I mean by that? That means you can't have verse 12 without verse 13. Even if you get a pen and scratch out 13 in your Bible, verse 12 makes no sense. The for there points us to the work of God. You see, God is emphatic here. He is the first word in this sentence. Calvin puts it this way. God himself presides over the Philippians, so they do not need to wait for Paul. God is at work in their midst, and their perseverance in their salvation is itself a gift of God. You know the famous Calvinistic flower, the tulip? It's a device to help us remember total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Well, it has been said with, I think, a good bit of truth that we could call that last point of the tulip the preservation of the saints by God. You see, because we persevere because of the gift of God to us. You see, what Paul is calling you to here in verse 12, in light of verse 13, is to become what you already are. That's his call to you today. You see, the wonderful, marvelous thing about this is, is Paul actually uses a present tense participle here in describing the work of God. That means God is at work Right now in your life. Not sometime when you get your act together. Not 30 years ago when you had more energy. Not when life was easier. But God is at work right now in your midst. And it's almost a title for God. The one who is working. You see, God is the worker. He works in us that we might work out our salvation. And this unification of our text, verse 12 and verse 13, helps us to avoid the errors of fear of acting against God's will or of legalism. Because you see, we acknowledge, I'm not what I ought to be. But God is in me. God is in charge of bringing out in me, to bring about in me, who he would have me to be. He's doing it in me, not off somewhere on the side, not in someone else's life, not somewhere up in the sky. God is at work right now in your marriage, right now in your parenting, right now in your schooling, 
God is at work now in your life. Don't ever forget that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are followed by verse 10. For by grace you have been saved, verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God, beloved, is in charge. And we can take comfort from that. What is this work that God does in us, though, we might ask ourselves. The work that God does in us is, first of all, active. God is the God who never sleeps. You remember that wonderful story in 1 Kings 18 that we looked at some time ago with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And the prophets of Baal can't get fire to come down. And Elijah sitting proverbially looking at his watch saying, well, you know, maybe, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe he's taking a nap. Who knows? Maybe he's gone out for a walk. We have to wait for him to get back. But you see, God is not like that at all. God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He never lets go of you. You see, that's what Jesus meant in John 10, 28 through 29, where he says, All whom you have given to me are in my hand, and I am in the Father's hand. You can never be lost. This work is a work that keeps you from beginning to end. You see, God is tirelessly active. He never forgets. And perhaps most importantly, the thing we need to hear, we can never put a stop to His work. If you are Jesus's, there is nothing that you can do that causes God to step back and say, whoa, didn't think you were going to do that. Guess we have to have a time out. You're on your own. Didn't know you'd respond to that difficulty that way. No. God is always active by His mercy and grace in our lives. His work is not only active, it is effective. The verb here for works in has the connotation of achieving its purpose. It's used not just in the Bible, but even in secular Greek literature to describe a work where the outcome is guaranteed. Let me give you one example from the scriptures. First, or excuse me, Second Peter, chapter one, in verse three, Peter writes, "His divine power has been granted to us. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness." So God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. But what does this mean? Verse five. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. You see, because God has given to us this work, we work secure in the knowledge of what God has given. God's work is active it is effective, and it is also comprehensive. Do you notice what kind of work God is doing here in verse 13? He works in you both to will and to work. You see, God is not just one who works to get the right results. He doesn't just want to get things from us. God is at work 
not only bringing about good works, but bringing about good people. He is changing us and conforming us into the image of Christ through His work. He is turning our will to His, conforming our mind to His. And we see this in our new desires that we experience as Christians. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst as we desire righteousness, justice, as we flee from sin. This is the work of God changing not only our actions, but our very wills. Why does God do this? Paul says, for his good pleasure. Now, there is a sense as we see these words that perhaps we can interpret them incorrectly. We think about our own pleasure and we think, well, God does this because it makes him happy. God does this because it's pleasing to him. No, beloved. You see, we first need to remember the nature of God. That God is not capricious. That God is not selfish. But that God is good. But we also need to remember that God's good pleasure is also His good purpose. It's not only for His own pleasure, but for His good purpose for us that He does these things. You see, only in God does His will and our complete blessing come together. There is no separation at all. You might ask yourself, why would God work in my life? Why would God do this? And the simple answer is, because He loves you. It's the reason He called for Himself a people, the least among all the peoples, because He set His love upon them. And so we work knowing that God works in our midst, and He does this because of His love for us. So where does this take us then, in conclusion? These two verses present before us a perfectly, biblically balanced picture of the Christian life. It is in the indicative, who I am, and the imperative, what I must do. And you see, we must do, Christian. But our doing is rooted in our being, in who we are in Christ, that equips us, that empowers us, that works in us the ability to do. You see, the Christian life is a seemingly paradoxical, confident resting in Jesus Christ, an active pursuing after Him. That is the life of a believer. May you know that sweet, sweet assurance today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before You this morning and we pray that You would put this word deep in our hearts, that it might bear great fruit, that we might be affected, that we might be changed, that we might be made more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in His precious name. Amen. Now hear the Lord's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.